Hello and welcome to this podcast series brought to you by Connect Health Tech. In our podcast series, we just explore and discuss a diverse range of themes and topics of interest, including developing interdisciplinary collaborations and impactful business support for entrepreneurs. I'm Paula Rogers-Brown, Business Community Manager for Connect Health Tech. And in this special episode of Joining the, Joining the Dots, we will explore leadership, in particular what it means to be a leader, and we will also discuss the future of work. Joining me today is Professor John Amici, an organisational psychologist, an award-winning international best-selling author, a sought-after public speaker, an executive coach and the founder of APS Intelligence. John was previously a director of the UK's largest healthcare organisation and a board advisor for several FTSE 100 organisations. Previously leaving Stockport for the USA at 18, John pursued his ambition to become the first Briton to have a career in the MBA, which he achieved just six years after picking up a basketball. And since retiring from sport, John has continued to learn and teach and amongst his many accolades is a research fellow at the University of East London with research interests that include effective included leadership, building high performing teams and effective organisational design that maximises productivity. And who doesn't like to maximise productivity? John has been recognised as one of HR's most influential thinkers and was inducted into HR Magazine's Hall of Fame in 2022. He is a LinkedIn top voice and has most recently been named in the 2023 Business Leaders list of top business influencers. John, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's you. my pleasure. That is some biography, and I didn't cover everything. I feel there's a movie in there somewhere, a movie of your life. I, I can see that now somehow. Uh, mm. With an audience of with an audience of my close friends and people I pay five pounds. You you listen, you never know. You know, everything is out there to be made into a movie to be watched. <laughs> and you know, and I'm sure there is so much more ahead of you, including movies. But but first of all, let's start, John. What drives you? Um, I love to I, I I love to help people realize that unbelievable sustainable success can come without a body count. That that's my thing. Even when you mention productivity, I I slightly cringe because I, I I we do want to enhance productivity, but many people think that means in a kind of battery chicken dehumanizing kind of way in a an autocratic, inflexible kind of way. And I think we can enhance productivity. In fact, we've seen right through the pandemic where productivity rose, mm. when when under the most difficult of circumstances, people can rise. And that rise was not associated with the ease of working under these, because this is easy for us now, remember, you know, but remember yeah. when we first entered pandemic, this was like, oh my God, I'm talking to a human being through a screen. It was not the welcome way of working as, as much. But we can really adapt, we can learn, we can grow, we can stretch ourselves and we can deliver outcomes as long as we remember that we are human beings, not widgets of productivity. I like that. I like that. So let's just take a little um, tour through your career. And, and the, the listeners to this type of podcast are really going to be interested in how you have navigated your career journey. So talk me through that transition from, from the MBA to organisational psychologist and award-winning author. And I imagine you didn't leap from one to the other. So how did the career moves come about and what did it entail and how did it work for you navigating through all of that? 
So I knew I'd be a psychologist when I was seven years old. I knew this is what I wanted to do. Uh, My mother was a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't like (laughs) the idea of cutting up cadavers. I didn't like the idea (laughs) of, you know, all the the, the fluids associated with human beings. It was not part of my vision. Whereas I find... Uh, while human beings are energy expensive, because I'm an introvert, I find humans to be energy expensive, that it's entirely worth it, the interactions you have and the way that you can influence small individual people, small groups of people, entire systems by helping people to reframe their thinking, to build a set of tools, to build knowledge. That was always fascinating to me. I, Obviously, when I was seven, I couldn't articulate it in in any kind of way that resembles that. But I was very clear that that's what I wanted to be able to do, help people change their minds. And then I got distracted by by basketball for for a period. But the the thing that's important here in terms of how do people transition, because people often think it's an odd transition from sports to science, essentially. And it's it's only an odd transition if you think I was a sportsman and I wasn't. I was a psychologist who played sport, if anything. But I'm a nerd and a, and a geek. That's the most important thing to know about me. And that's not changed since I was seven reading Asimov and sci-fi books. So while I played, I studied. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, undergraduate in America. I was at Penn State. Uh, graduated a little early. Ended up taking my first year of master's. Finished my master's. Went on. And doctorate, um, advanced stuff that's postdoc and that's just been part of the plan so by the time I retired from from basketball in 2005 I was I took six months off and drank a lot of wine and ate every form of cheesecake I could get my hands on all stuff I'd been kind of denied in any in any amounts while I played and then after that I started APS it wasn't called that at the time but I started APS and um, over the years, because, I, you know, this is the other part of a successful transition is knowing what you're not good at. So I'm not a CEO of this organization because I would be a catastrophic CEO, whereas we've got a really brilliant CEO who functions to give us this structure and, and dynamic and strategy, which I, which I can contribute to, but I can also fulsomely contribute to the bits that I can do, which is the image, slightly weird, but effective content that we have. And that's that's the partnership that makes this all work. Great that, that you've been able to to navigate to that point and recognise, as you said, the bits that um, you, you reflect in and self-reflection in there is is a is a big part of growing up and being an adult and understanding those bits that you, this harnessing your strength, but understanding where okay maybe not so good at and and sometimes having to roll in that road anyways because yep. that's just the way life is. Um, but um, taking those opportunities where you really can harness your strengths the best. That is that's really that's really great. Um, and in terms of organisational psychology, what are the common misconceptions about it? Come on, unpick it for us. Um, there's a mysticism around psychology. Yeah. And, I, and I honestly think it's it's probably some psychologist's fault in that that our profession needs people to see us as kind of ooh, we're we're wise and sage um, gurus in this space that everyone else is not clever enough to understand, and and the reality is that it is a science like many like many sciences. So, but it's it, that's what psychology is. It's it's a bunch of tenants 
And I'm a grab bag psychologist too, a humanistic psychologist by training, which means I'm really interested in how incongruence causes pain. Um, in the context of the workplace, very often it's the incongruence of the promise made, often on your website that says, "Hey, come here. Your managers will take interest in you, and you'll, you know, you'll have a great time, and you'll, your experience, and we respect you as a human being, and there'll be no prejudice." And then you've got the actual lived experience, which is, it's not even how you and the most senior person interact; it's how you and the direct line manager interacts, who's often incredibly busy, fraught, and slightly underskilled in terms of people skills. So that's the nature of the psychology that I grew up with. But the, the truth is that we're an evidence-based practice. And if I can see something that I think will work and there's an evidence base behind it, I will grab that thing, take it and use it in a workplace. And that moves us very nice and, 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 and smoothly into leadership um, and, and, and management. And you've spoken previously, John, about managers being giants and having an additional layer of responsibility beyond their technical area of expertise. Can you unpack for me what you mean by that um, and why it matters? Performance is a human phenomena. There are lots of augmentive things with technology and other pieces, right, that are important, but it's human phenomena. So if you have a human and you put them in an environment where they are distracted and um, scared and insecure and worried and challenged and all of these things that are on the negative side, then they're not going to perform as well for you. Leaders are the primary driver of the experience of direct reports, managers are. Uh, 2015, there was this study done by Gallup that talked about 70% of the variance in the, in the engagement of any employee is their direct line manager. Their direct line manager is 70%, the preponderance of the, the reason for their engagement or disengagement. That's incredibly powerful. There was a, I'm, so this is the nerd part, right? So I was reading another study the other day that was done. Um, this was McKinsey had, um, had collated from the workforce. What are the reasons, people who'd left jobs recently, what were the top five reasons you left the job? Now, one of them was remuneration. We all know that there's a cost of living crisis. We all know that people will jump even from a good job to a job that pays more if, it, if that will help them with their family circumstance or otherwise, or they need a mortgage or whatever. But that was one reason. The other four reasons were all based in managers. They were all based in managers who didn't, weren't interested in developing me or there was no development plan available for me. Managers who were insincere or disengaged. And, and the, the, the four of the other reasons were all based in human factors. And that's why leadership is so important. It's not a title, you know. People think that manager, leader, these aren't titles. They are promises. Promises of a kind of experience. Uh, a promise, and by the way, not an, of an easy ride. There's no, there's no, <laughs> there's no person in 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 Britain or even I would I would suggest to you in most of the world who thinks that their job should be easy. What they are imagining is that 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 challenge and support should come in equal measure. What they are imagining is that the way they are treated will not be different than the way a colleague is treated if both of those colleagues are operating within acceptable parameters, right? There shouldn't be differences because one's a woman and one's a man or anything else. And so that's what it is. Leaders are promise keepers. And, and I always tell leaders, you should take a peek 
take a peek at your website's careers page and look at the promises of being, that are being made on your, on your behalf. And no, don't just look at them and read them, because often what we forget is the simplest promise. Um, this is a very common one on websites, on careers pages. Your manager will take an interest in your career or some version of that. And you think about that and you think, well, yeah. Because most leaders say, yeah, yeah, in my head, I'm really interested in you. Yeah, Paula, really interested in you. But what we mean is, as long as it's in our head, it's no problem. But I think if I, if I say I'm really interested in you, you should expect more than twice yearly conversations about my performance. You should, ex you should expect that I'm interested when you struggle with something to help you with a solution. You should expect that when I see your potential or I see some skills, I explore them and see where else you could go in the business. I should expect that we would have regular conversations about how you're doing and whether work is, is getting in the way of your thriving. I think that's what happens when you, when you say your manager's interested in your career. It's a big cascade of responsibilities. It is, and I, I wonder then, what it is, um, and it, you know, to a certain extent, it's no fault of of many managers who get promoted into people management positions. Technically proficient, can't be overstated enough. However, people management, mm -mm -mm, you know, can be a challenge. And what, what do you think then that organisations should be doing more of potentially to support? people the people management side of things um, and more than beyond training because everybody can attend a training course and we and we all do as people managers but it's more than that as you've said it's more than that yeah i mean it depends what the the, the training is but but fundamentally the the creating behavior change is, a, is about a number of things it's about knowledge it's about a deep integrated knowledge and in the case of a manager that means a knowledge of the individual people as people not just as job descriptions who work with and for you it's also a knowledge of those individuals as human beings so that you understand you know this is an this is a person i look at them and i realize how i need to give them feedback is different than how i might give another person feedback and i respond appropriately to that so there is a lot of skill that knowledge that you have to learn in order to be uh, requisitely able to manage other people. I would say, you know, what do we need to do? We need to give people that knowledge in a way that isn't perfunctory. It isn't like, here's half hour or an hour online course where you click, 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 and you get 100%. But where you actually do what we do, which is our courses are interactive with role play. So that all of a sudden you'd be thrust in in one of our courses, you'd be thrust into a position where here's a scenario, go, what would you do? And we'd, we'd all listen to that. And then we'd give you some framework to say, well, how might you improve it if you thought of these five things? Because let's, let's stop managers having to be brilliant in the moment. Let's just give them a list of five things. You follow this script, you're going to be all right. And then we'd, we'd critique it and practice it because we know what makes us better really solid effortful practice is what makes us better focused practice is what makes us better the other thing we need to do is remember the risk to the business of elevating people without an interest in people there's a real risk to a business of doing that <clears throat> most of the problems that we have with our workforce especially those that lead to grievances are they tend to be based around leaders who either abdicate their responsibility or or didn't have the skills or were pernicious, were, were, were malicious with their power. 
and we can we can at least control for some of those factors by giving people more skill. Yeah. Um, I think this is the way. It, you know, it's not it's not rocket science. How do we learn anything, right? We talk to people who do it well. We read, read book interim to show our interest. We 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 find opportunity practice. And just similarly on on that point in your book, the promises of giants, um, you used a fourteen point guide to provide practical and proven tips and strategies to empower and maximize an individual's potential. You know, potentially these these um, leaders. So, what can you talk me through? What are some of the qualities needed for effective leadership? Um, and how can we all be leaders, really? As you said, you know, um, leadership isn't just about those with a with the title and the badge of manager um, and um, CEO, etc. So, so what are those qualities needed for effective leadership? This is a this is a great question because we've got a community of leaders called the Giant Community that we we, we bring okay. together because they're people who really want to develop their leadership for this modern era. And I asked them, uh, probably must have been last year. I asked them. Uh, what were the what was the what were the criteria that led you or, or that people thought were important for leadership when you were coming up in business? And, and some of them are like me, a bit older, a bit longer in the tooth. And I asked them and, and this is this is what they said when I asked them. They said these criteria. So they said uh, charisma, confidence, experience. You'll, if you look at the, the, the chart in front of you, it says male. <laughs> but and it's not a lie, though, is it? It's not a lie. Because one of the criteria was that. And then it's got gift of the gab. It's got strength and assertive and arrogance. These were the things that people thought were, were, were brilliant for, for leaders back in the day. And so I asked them, what about now? What are the characteristics of leaders now? Um, and I was very clear. I'm not just talking about post-pandemic. There's lots of people talking about we need a new type of leader because of the pandemic. We don't. We need a new type of leader because success through disruption requires an, an additional set of skills. It's not that some forms of assertiveness aren't important or some kinds of confidence aren't important, but just that it's not that profile of a big, strong man, which is what essentially many leadership profiles are, loud, certain, invulnerable. They aren't useful anymore. And so I asked them, what are the new things? And they said this, vision. Empathy, emotional intelligence, kindness, flexibility. Boy, are we seeing how workplaces are coming a cropper about flexibility and agility, compassion, inclusion. But it also includes, you know, collaboration. It also includes accountability and great communication. So these are the characteristics that make great leaders. And that's why I wrote The Promises of Giants, because they're the, the promises are the kind of things that allow us to both the, the book's split into essentially three parts. Introspection, what about me? Interpersonal, what about the skills with me and another or others? And then organizational, how do I influence and how do I not be decimated by the large systems that I work within? And so, yeah, that, those are the characteristics. That's what matters. I, I even saw female on there. So the shift from male, which was quite prominent in the first slide to, you know, female and the empathy, uh, you know, accountability, world apart, really. Those, those it, is, it, it is important to note, though, it, it's not that it's not it's not that women always have. I think people make the mistake and they think women always have a set of characteristics and 
you know, all women are empathetic. And, and it's an excuse, I think, that men use as why they can't be as empathetic, why they can't be as vulnerable. And it's just nonsense. We can all demonstrate those because it's just socialization. We can all demonstrate it and we're better off for demonstrating it. Yeah, it's just tapping into what is already there. Yeah, absolutely. And that, again, if I think about the context of, of those qualities of leadership, and the you know the pandemic which has shifted what we thought were the normal or what were the normal work norms the tectonic plates have shifted but to what degree and there are four areas i thought would be really quite interesting to to briefly explore with you um and the first one is around what do you envisage as the future of work thinking about the next decade what does the future of work look like for um in terms of people and then we'll go on to another a couple of, of areas as well. It We're at a, uh, a crossroads is a bit. Um, but it is a crossroad, right? Yeah, but it, it's not as simple as a crossroads. I suppose you, you're correct, right? So you, you, you can see the image in my head. It's the idea that we're at a we're at a point where many good or bad decisions could be made that could lead us. But not just in either this hellscape direction or this angelic direction, if you want but rather a myriad of choices that are going to branch out that could take us lots of different places. And so for people, the new world, if we embrace agile, asynchronous, diverse, geographically uh, displaced, which is the direction we're currently going in by accident, if nothing else, and the managers who manage in those environments do not adhere to autocratic, rigid old-fashioned ways of leading and teaching, then we could be in an environment where we could maybe, just for the first time, actually not have to lie when we say, I really am interested in the best person for this job. Because that type of environment could be the kind of environment where people with disabilities would find massive barriers reduced to workplaces where people with caring responsibilities, disproportionately black and brown people have adult caring responsibilities, but lots of people have child caring responsibilities. So where these people could find that their agile, flexible, compacted and other work weeks would enable them to really add to the workplace and they would be able to advance knowing that that structure would always enable them or at least enable them during the periods where that was necessary for them. So, so that's kind of one side of it where this, there's this possibility. There's the possibility that people who are in jobs that don't pay a great amount but no longer require you to live in a big city can suddenly find themselves having a, a lifestyle enhancement because they're living. It's not for me. I live in Covent Garden. I like cities. Um, <laughs> but but and that's a privilege that, that I have, by the way, really, uh, really understand that's that's just a privilege for me. But other people will think, oh, my goodness, I could go. My mom grew up in Hyde near Manchester and they're saying, well, maybe I can live in Hyde, where the cost of rental or the cost of a mortgage is, is uh, the cost of a house is exponentially less. And so the salary that I have now working for this company that actually is based in the centre of Manchester or based in the centre of Birmingham, uh, this is a really livable thing. And I don't mind taking that train journey to see everybody once a month, because can you see what I mean? There's this picture of a future, but the kind of leader we need to lead that asynchronous, agile, hybrid team is somebody with all of those skills that I that I showed on that second slide. Yeah. That's yeah. that's the key. Or 
if we listen to some of the megalomaniacs out there, people like Elon Musk, um, who said that it's a moral uh, a moral wrong for people to work in agile environments to to work remotely. We could end up with these people who are like they're like dinosaurs, and they they think that the the present is attached by a bungee cord to the past, and they're just waiting for the past to snap back and knock what we're doing out of the way again. So we go back to everybody's in the office, and don't forget we weren't in the office nine to five. Vast majority of people who were office based, their days didn't end. It's just they 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 did a bit of work, they commuted, they worked all day. They they had a sandwich at their desk and then they finished their day, but never at five. They commuted and then were on their phone or their, their iPad doing work at night. And it's like, that's what they want to go back to. I would say, if you want to go back to that, we need to start paying people for all the hours they're working. Mm-hmm. If yeah. you want to go back to that, you've got to tell them you want people in the office. I, I, we have an office. We're, we're quite a remote business, but we have an office. If you want people back in the office, all you have to do is answer one question. Why? And if your answer is, do you know how expensive this place is? You've lost. If your answer is, we, we give you free coffee and bananas at lunchtime. You've lost. If your answer is, can you see how colorful this place is and how nice that whiteboard is that's digital and you can, you've lost. Because people want to know what is the human reason for being in a space where everybody can tell when you're going to go pee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Presenteeism um, is, um, and I've, you know, I've worked in the, in London, and as, as very much the culture when I worked there of presenteeism. Um, God knows what they thought people were actually doing at their desks all that time. Heaven only knows. But um, yeah, moving away from that. Although they're saying that. There are massive benefits from 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 those connections and connectivity, those they call them water cooler moments. But generally, as you're passing each other from one meeting to another type of thing. Yeah, there is something in that as well. So there? so there, there is something in this, but I just need everybody to understand. I am not anti being in the office. I'm anti being in the office because you want to watch me work. Mm. I'm anti being in the office because you don't trust me to deliver for you if you can't see me. Because if that's the case, you've hired the wrong people. These water cooler moments that people talk about, they are the cliquiest spaces in the workplace. They always were. They're the places where you've got these two men, and they're often two men stood there, joined by a third man who's allowed to join, but not to contribute, just to listen to the two wizened men talk about wisdom stuff. And then somebody will walk past in that corridor and they'll be completely silent until they leave again. That was the water cooler. It wasn't this inclusive space where they saw a junior who nobody really knew the name and they said, come on over here. You just joined the company. Come and join us because we're talking about transactions today or we're talking about retail. We're talking about interest rates. We're talking we're talking about technology. That's not what was happening. This is part of the problem with the the work, the, the image of the office. We have this idea that it was this glorious place that you arrived and as you walked flowers sprung up in the carpet and and you sat down and and somebody massaged your shoulders but what actually happened was you arrived to a very likely open plan office and the data on the detriment of open plan offices to, to performance and productivity is massive you sat down 
you put your headphones on, you put your do not disturb on Teams, and you did your work. That's the reality of most people's office. And those people who have blue collar jobs, by the way, who don't have a choice of remote working, th their jobs, their, their jobs are, are still in the same place, but they don't have they, they they are still standing at a line or picking here or stacking a shelf here or, you know, on a construction site. The, the, we seem to have this weird thing where those jobs, we have a very clear image of, the, of how difficult and challenging and dirty and kind of clumsy and, and challenging they are. And, and yet we completely undervalue the work that, that those workers do. But for so-called professional workers, we've got this delusional image of what the office used to be and a weird idea that these these are now entitled people who who don't realize how easy they had it at work and they never did interesting interesting aspect we we, we touched a little bit on within that talking about people and the, the organizations what's the nature of work going to look like um john in the next decade Ooh, so um uh, unrecognizable Everybody will be talking and thinking about technology, and it's not that that you know predictive AI is not something important, but the future of work is human. The future of work is human. It's shifting, and there's going to be some radical shifts that we really need to be careful of. The the things like ChatGPT four and others there there are a plethora of these out there right now, mm. offerings from Google from Microsoft as well as smaller niche offerings. Some of these things literally threaten entire industries because once regulation is caught up, the idea that some of the work that's done by you know a, a trainee accountants at the bottom of the ladder in professional services couldn't be done by this. It, it's really unlikely. And, and what happens to the economy of major cities when instead of the big four hiring 25,000 graduates every year, they, have, they hire 5,000 graduates? What happens to their system of function when they rely on an attritional model where a ton of people who they broadly think are quite good are narrowed down over time in the pyramid with huge amounts of experience? mostly that they have to earn themselves and train and formal training. What happens when that base of the pyramid that contains 25,000 graduates is suddenly only 5,000 graduates that you must get your future partners from? There's an existential threat to some businesses that don't even realize it yet. Um, that's, that's part of the challenge of the future. But the opportunity is also that between 2016 and uh, 2030, the, the, the data tells us something between 75 million and 375 million uh, job roles globally will shift. People will no longer have the job that they, they're no longer going to keep a job for an entire career. That's already something of a myth anyway. And But the, it's going to be, the change is going to be so rapid. Uh, if you look in finance sectors right now, uh, the job of a business analyst used to be a forever job. You get in, you start, and you end up as a, as a very senior person in that and now it's a dead end at the mid-level. And that's going to continue to happen, which is why workplaces are going to have to shift from utilization cultures where they're here to measure how much you're earning for a client every hour to learning cultures where and it's not that delivering for clients and earning fees will be unimportant, for example. 
but it's the idea that if you are not teaching your people constantly, and I do mean per-led learning, not compliance-led learning. I'm not talking about your health and safety flip chart that you've got to get to. I'm talking about the kind of learning that, that anticipates a shift in either customer market or other trends, technology or other trends that will allow you to have a business that's sustainable through all this disruption. We're, we're essentially going to operate the next 10 years in an omni-crisis. That's what it's going to be. Because right, you know, on a customer or individual level, you've got cost of living crisis. On an organizational and governmental level, you've got socio-political upheaval, you've got autocrats, you've got democracy under pressure, you've got wars in Europe. You've got market volatility like we've never seen. You've got companies that we never imagined will be shedding jobs at the rate they're shedding jobs currently, in part because they haven't anticipated what will be needed in the future. That's the future of work, and every single element of it is the gravity of it is around human beings. So I hope yeah. we don't get too distracted by AI. And, it, and I think that one of the things, uh, apart from AI, is the the human aspect is as individuals being agile and flexible, and um, in a way being open to what the future, what those job roles might look like, where the skills might then be transferable from what you are doing now, where you think you might be going into something that is not even on your radar right now. It's, it's you know, skills-based pathways are going to be the future because right now we're a qualification-based pathway and some people are even a qualification and kind of status pathway. That's why we pick you know, that's why if you went to a Russell Group, I teach at a Russell Group University, but it's why if you're if you went to a Russell Group University, that's somehow better than if you went to a different kind. And, and I think we need to move away from this to a skills matrix based. So what are your discrete skills and what are your skills you mentioned before, not just in your technical and subject matter areas, but in your interpersonal, introspective and organizational management areas because then you can see from this list you can start to see when a new job crystallizes a new role crystallizes you can say what are the characteristics and skills that are required for this job are they going to manage a team that brings into all those people areas all those interpersonal and in introspective areas and what's their technical matrix that they need to have and all of a sudden you can start selecting people based on what you now know about them but we have to move away from the clumsy way we we assess people right now because you know, personality testing is a crock and, and so much of this other stuff just doesn't offer us any real insights to the human being of who's going to inhabit a role in the future and a role that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, it's exciting, though. It's exciting. It's, it's awesome. I love that phrase. Skills based pathway is the future. So um, we need to all need to watch this space and watch carefully um, and be ready, ready to jump in with both feet. Um, I'd just like to understand, John, what or who inspires you? People that many would think unremarkable. Mm -hmm. so, so I was I was in Madrid with a client and I was I was met at port uh, by a young man who worked for the events team. Yeah, young, young Spanish lad who'd played uh, football, uh, our football, in in America. Uh, he went to to university. He went to Amer He went to America when he didn't speak a word of English. Learned English 
as he was in classes and in his first year he passed all his classes even though he he didn't speak a word of english this kid stayed in america for his 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 university experience then came back to spain found himself a job because now he's bilingual and and uh, he he accompanied me for the three days of this event and made sure I was where I was supposed to be because I get a bit scatterbrained when I'm supposed to be kind of performing. And an utter delight the whole period and expressed to me this 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 idea that I had somehow done something unusual in learning his name. And I'd done something unusual in wanting to talk to him when I didn't have to. And you, this is the thing that I think people don't realize is it's not I've met amazing people. Right. I, I could humble brag my way to the top right now because I've met some remarkable people who who made me feel small and special. But I think of Abel, I think of um, the two young men who are in who, who are in the coffee shop that I go to in the mornings who were talking about purpose at work while they were making a flat white. And you suddenly think, boy, oh boy, if we could just properly identify and elevate, aren't there some just special people out there? That's 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 it for me. Yeah. That's our job, right? That's my job in my work. Find these people, elevate them, and, and, and watch as they watch as they make my own contributions look minimal it it goes some way to um character um of, of people um I, yeah i come across like yourself john and it's it's really nice um when somebody does say oh you know well thank you for even remembering my name it's it's lovely because it's it's completely unexpected um and they have a vision of how you know, um, the, the great and the good can and will be. Um, so it's it's small stuff like that. And if you find that inspirational, fantastic. And now we're on to the quick fire round. I've heard that you like eating a very British type of food, pies. And who doesn't like a pie, John? What's your favourite? Prob uh, it, it's it's a steak and ale pie is my favourite traditional pie yes um love that absolutely love that but by the way if it's a pie there's crust there's there's pie base underneath and a crust yeah. on top oh, none, none, of this, of these. none of this just putting out a pastry hat on something <laughs> so along with that pie then are you chips fries or mashed potato no chips uh the double cut thick Salted, that's what we're doing. Now, from one Star Wars fan to another, this could be debatable, this one. The original, if you had to pick, there's only the two here. If you had to choose to watch one of them on repeat, would it be the original, A New Hope, or The Force Awakens? Uh, New Hope, easily. And and I wasn't a hater for The Force Awakens, by the way. Mm -hmm. it, it is... It is simply that the, the 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 original was part of the reason why I became a psychologist. I thought that Jedi were psychologists. I thought the psychologists were Jedi. And so that's why I'm a psychologist, because it's the closest thing I could be to being a Jedi. 
Wow. Okay. Little insight there. Like it. I'm the Force Awakens, by the way. <laughs> and finally, if you could time travel, John, where would you go and when? I mean, if it's completely fanciful, completely, then I'm I'm going back. I'm interested if if there's no if there's no shenanigans and there's no breakdowns in my machinery of time travel. And I can instantly do it. So I would go back to like the era of the dinosaurs, and because it's such a massive era, you could you could explore along that timeline for for, for hundreds of years. And because I'd think that would be fascinating, but only if I can literally the moment I'm being chased by a T Rex, I can press a button and I'm gone. People often talk about going back in regular history and human history, yeah. and I think that people don't realize how far we've come, and especially when people talk about time travel in the context of the Victorian era or mm -hmm. or, or 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 the Middle Ages or anywhere else, it's quite a privileged position to think you could go back and be all right, because I wouldn't. I wouldn't last that long. True, true. There's, there's fact, there's fact in that. Is yeah, era of the dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> not, but with a button, emergency, get out, big red button. <laughs> Oh, that is um, absolutely fantastic. And I just thank you so much for, for being a part of this Joining the Dots podcast, John, and sharing your knowledge and experiences of leadership development and guiding us through what we can all expect from the future of work. And be agile, be nimble. And um, I think to everyone listening, I hope you really enjoyed this wonderful discussion with John as part of Connect Health Tech Live. Thank you so much, John. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Paula.